Hello, everybody. It is December the 22nd, 2021. And I'm going to run our intro and then we'll be back with uh, my guest today, uh, who is going to talk about the Bering Strait of all places. Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. As I said, it is December the 22nd. I'm talking to you, as always, from San Francisco in California. Uh, this morning, I did an interesting show earlier today about capitalism in the sea with a couple of UK-based academics, Liam Campling and Alejandro Colas. Uh, this interesting relationship between the capitalism and the sea uh, was focused on, to borrow some language from these authors, what keeps capitalism afloat, not the oceans, although we know in some ways capitalism may indeed be undermining the ocean. Um, oceans make up the majority of the world's, uh, the Earth's surface, and they're in trouble, uh, just as the general environment is. And many of the questions about uh, global warming and the, the future of, of the Earth, the future of our planet, are related to critiques of capitalism. We've had a number of shows recently about the environment and global warming. The day before uh, yesterday, uh, I, we were talking about water um, with, uh, uh, with a, a wonderful young uh, author, Devi Lockwood, the author of A Thousand and One Voices on Climate Change. Devi traveled around the world. Uh, here we have again an image of the world with many oceans, uh, talking to people about our climate crisis, getting on the ground reporting. As I said in the introduction, we are focusing... Um, today, not on the whole earth, not on all the oceans, but on a particular ocean or a particular part of the ocean, the Bering Sea, that sea that exists between Russia and Alaska, between uh, Eurasia and North America. Um, and uh, the Bering Strait is a, a, a fascinating geographical and, I think, cultural phenomenon, uh, which my guest today, um, uh, Bathsheba Demuth um, has made the subject of her wonderful, it's not a new book, it came out a couple of years ago, but it's been winning awards all over the place, including in 2021, a book called Floating Coast, an environmental history of the Bering Strait. And I'm thrilled um, that Bathsheba is joining us today from Iowa. She teaches regularly at Brown University uh, in Rhode Island, but she's with her family in Iowa at the moment. As I joked to her before we uh, switched the show on, uh, Iowa is not a particularly bearing straight kind of place. Um, Bathsheba, welcome to my show. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's such a pleasure to be here. And I apologize for such a, a laborious introduction. Usually they're a little sharper. Um, Bathsheba, this book uh, has been um, acclaimed in in many different um, in in many different communities. Uh, 
for people watching. It's the winner of many different prizes, including the 2021 John H. Dunning Prize. Uh, tell me a little bit about the book. I know you went to live um, in the Bering Strait. So what we call, um, uh, you didn't live with the Chukki people, but you lived um, you lived with the walrus in the Bering area. How much of your time did you spend there in order to write this book? So there's there's a short answer to that question, which is that I did the research for the book specifically in a few years. Um, but I've been living on and off in the far north since I was 18. And so it's it's more of a multi-decade project uh, of getting to know um, this this region that geographers call Beringia that's around the Bering yeah, Strait. Uh, Beringia, which even has a, a Wikipedia entry uh, alongside the Bering Straits. Beringia refers to the the broader geographical region com- uh, which um, connects, I guess, uh, conceptually the two continents. Is that fair? Yes, and, and in addition to the kind of conceptual links, Ecologically, there's enormous similarities between what is now the Russian part of the Bering Strait and the Alaskan side. Um, there's a lot of cultural continuity between the two sides of the strait. Um, and there's a great deal of kind of geological similarity. So you can look at landforms on the two sides um, and think you're on the other one. So it really does have a, a kind of unity to it that the the border now, now kind of um, it's harder to cross in practical terms, um, but certainly not for the walruses. There have been some great titles in terms of reviews. Um, and as I said, the book has been acclaimed. Um, New York, uh, sorry, the New York Times suggested that um, it was, uh, the book is anything but narrow. Uh, and then my favorite uh, headline was from the New York Review of Books, Blood on the Ice. How bloody is the book, and how bloody was your experience, Demuth, in um, in uh, in in, in Bashiba in, in terms of living there? So it is a relatively uh, gory story in some ways. Um, the history that I talk about starts roughly of the 19th century, and it starts with commercial whalers arriving um, from places like Providence uh, to the Bering Strait, um, and kind of kicking off this era of very intense capitalist exploitation of Arctic species. Um, and that led to a great deal of blood on the ice from and walruses and other species. Um, and then that kind of continues into the 20th century when the Soviet Union um, in many ways picks up and expands upon the kinds of activities that um, market hunters had been doing in the 19th century. Um, I realize for vegetarians, it can be a bit of a, there, there can be some difficult passages. Well, you don't have to eat meat to to read the book. You just have to experience some blood and gore. Um, this place, then, Beringia, has fascinating geographical significance. Um, it's this place where these these two great continents meet, but also politically, um, as you suggested, uh, the place was originally colonized by the Russians. Uh, pre-revolutionary Russians, Tsarist Russians, not perhaps the most sympathetic or pacifist of people. And then, of course, continue, continue to be colonized by the Soviet Union. And on the other side is the United States of America, again, a country with a rather bloody past. What did you learn about this 
convergence of Russia, the Soviet Union, and the United States? What what did that convergence? What kind of special um, special consequences resulted in this clash of various kinds of civilizations and ideologies? So the thing that really drew me to writing about the two sides of the Bering Strait together was the way in which in the 19th and 20th centuries, it's divided politically and and very starkly in the 20th century between the US and the Soviet Union. And so I started the project with all sorts of assumptions about how you would see massive differences between the kinds of um, social transformations and economic interventions that the capitalists and the socialists kind of participated in And what I found was actually a lot more convergence than I expected. Um, Certainly there are differences between the Soviet Union and the U.S. in how they went about exploiting natural resources and and causing these parts of the North. But often the environment itself is so different than what either country kind of had in mind as the norm that they ended up converging on really very similar kinds of policies, um, both in terms of their indigenous peoples in the North um, and in the ways that they treated different northern ecosystems and species. Is it a classic kind of colo- brutal colonial settlement in our conversation about capitalism and the sea? We talked about the sea as the place that transported slaves and many other forms of injustice, but particularly slavery. Um, does the occupation, I guess, I'm not sure if that's the right word, of Beringia, um, does it fall into all the traditional categories of, of Western colonization, brutality, um, physical and natural exploitation? It's a good question. And I think I think there are many continuities, but I think there are some interesting differences. Um, for example, the distance that this part of the world is from the major power centers and from easy tra- transit either in the Russian case or in the U.S., meant that the, the policies on the ground were often different than these imperial projects would want. Um, the Russian Empire, for example, loses a war with the Chukchi um, in the 1700s because they're just able to kind of muster the kind of military force um, necessary to, to fully colonize uh, the Chukchi Peninsula and basically just give up on it um, and trade with the Chukchi but any uh, kind of formal governance. Um, and even in the case of the way in which species are exited, there's certainly um, mass over-harvesting is a major theme of the book and the ways in which both socialists and capitalists necessarily able to discipline their appetites for species that take a long time to um, raise their young and grow to maturity. But there's also, to me, some really interesting moments in the historical record when you see the animals themselves um, kind of pushing back against these exploitation. And this was particularly the case with bowhead whales, um, which are one of the large kind of slow moving whale species. They can live for a couple of centuries and are extremely um, intelligent and communicative and social. So they sing to each other. Um, they have a lot of behaviors that indicate that they are transmitting information between whales rather than between generations genetically. And there's a period in and were the these, early... were these whales, um, I apologize uh, for, for, for jumping in here, but the bowhead whales, were they aggressively hunted by everybody um, who arrived in this region, including, I, I'm assuming, the native peoples, or did they have a different relationship with the whales? 
No, it's a great question. Uh, thank you for, for jumping in with that. Um, so historically, going back basically as far as we have any kind of record whatsoever, um, bowhead whales have been extremely important to and Yupik and Chukchi hunters, um, but at a level that was not detrimental to bowhead whale populations. So maybe a hundred whales per year were killed by the entire um, Is that population. because of technological limitations on the part of these native peoples, or was it they simply recognized the ecological limitations and were respectful to make sure that they would have whales to hunt the following year? So that the ethical understanding of the relationship between people's whales really guarded and still continues to guard against over-harvesting. So the, the understanding is that people need to be kind of respectful and careful in the number of whales that they will and not hunt more than is necessary for human subsistence. Uh, that kind of ethic really kind of guides indigenous hunting into the present. Um, and it's very different than what capitalist whalers brought in in the um, 19th century when their you know, whale ships, whalers were only paid a percentage of their harvest. So they had every reason to kill as many whales as they possibly could. And this initially was very easy to do in the Bering Strait because bowheads were very docile. The whalers could just sail up next to them and kill as many as they wanted to. Um, but one of the interesting things that's clear in the historical record is that the bowheads adapted to capitalist hunters very quickly. Um, they learned that these hunters were a new kind of and started this whole new set of evasive behaviors in order to avoid these kind of Moby Dick style ships. Um, diving the ice, fleeing in various ways, um, to the point that in the 1850s, the, the entire whaling fleet actually had to leave the Bering Strait because they were not able to successfully hunt. Um, they eventually overcome this to the detriment of the whales. Um, but the, it is an interesting moment where you can see the adaptation of a particular species in the face of a new kind of, in this case, capitalist um, kind of incursion in their lives. Bathsheba, was the same true of, of, of some of the other, the lambay species, the reindeer, um, the walrus, who I assume were also hunted by both the Russian and American settlers? So there's some interesting um, differences, and the book is actually in some ways divided up between species because they're kind of reflections of how people interact with their humans. In the case of walruses, there's both kind of an explosion of hunting in the uh, 19th century by this kind of list crews, often the same whaling crews that were killing bowheads. And then the Soviet Union brings online similar kind of set of harvesting practices in the 20th century, particularly during the kind of high Stalinist cultural revolution, um, when there were lots of reasons why to be a good Soviet citizen, you needed to do this kind of, um, kind of excessive production. And then both countries actually come up with what are essentially conservation programs that look very much like each other. They sort of recognize that they need to conserve these species in particular. Um, but that was, very... as a, that was as a consequence of the blood on the eyes. It wasn't, there was no essential humanity there. They just simply recognized that if they continued to hunt, they'd run out of food and run out of things to kill. Is that fair? I think that is fair. It's not, you know, um, some moment when either the U.S. government or the Soviets became, you know, kind of tree-hugging nature, one with nature, it is very pragmatic. 
um, but pragmatic in a way that did the kind of short-term economic interest countries. In the height of the Cold War, um, Bathsheba, when the Russians and the Americans seemed at some points to be on the brink of atomic annihilation, some sort of uh, you know end of, of the world entirely, were there better relations in Beringia between the, the Soviets and the Americans living side by side, um, separated by a, a sea, as Sarah Palin famously said, you could sometimes see Russia on a good day? Yeah, you can definitely see Russia from parts of Alaska, um, where I've been. Um, and that actually, during the early parts of the Cold War, led to an enormous amount of anxiety on the part of both countries um, in the United States. The FBI was worried that um, the, the long-standing family ties between uh, Yupik and uh, Nupiak community sides of the Bering Strait would kind of override any sort of national feeling. Um, so there was worries that the people would sort of not respect the and the Soviet Union had a very similar set of concerns. Um, in the Soviet case, this led to um, multiple closures of indigenous along the Bering Strait to move people kind of away from border towns because they were seen as kind of an ideological risk. Um, so the, the sees a real deterioration in, in the capacity for people to cross back and forth. And it becomes heavily militarized um, because before the invention of intercontinental ballistic missiles, the major kind of nuclear arsenals of both countries were in the Arctic um, because it's the... Well, the closest... Did the Soviets send sort of high-level party functionaries to run the show there? And what kind of Americans were based there? Do, were, were the CIA and the FBI and the, mil the U.S. military sending people out there because... Uh, just as there were indigenous peoples um, uh, on the Russian-Soviet side, there were also indigenous peoples on the American side. Yeah, so there were military bases kind of spring up all over the Arctic during the Cold War, um, you know, across the, the high Arctic Canada for the um, kind of distant early warning system. The Soviet Arctic has a similar version of that and many military bases. Those all come with different forms of security and intelligence gathering. Um, and, and some of them are, you know, on St. Lawrence Island, which is U.S. territory in the middle of the Bering Sea. There's a kind of a Russian counterpoint um, on Big Diomede, which is right in the Bering Strait. Um, so it, it really, there's a huge influx of people. Um, and, you know, some of those records are still not um, amenable to historical perusal yet. Um, I can imagine they probably never will. I am talking with Bathsheba uh, Demuth, who is the author of a really acclaimed, relatively new book. It's been out a year or two, Floating Coast, an Environmental History of the Bering Strait. It's cultural, it's political, it's environmental. It's the winner of many awards. It's one of the, the most sensational books, I think, written in the environmental field over the last year or two. She teaches at Brown University. She's talking to us from Iowa. Um, Bathsheba, we're going to take a, a very short break and then we're going to come back and I want to talk about your own experiences on the ground there and I want to talk about the local peoples and, and what you learned about them. So stay with us, everyone. We'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching 
or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with Bathsheba Demuth, the author of a, a really acclaimed new book, Floating Coast. Um, uh, Bathsheba, you have a wonderful website. Uh, congratulations on the website. I think it's probably the best website of any author I've come across. I think I'm going to find out from you afterwards who designed it and use it for my own website. And there's a description you have of yourself. Usually these descriptions of authors are boring or annoyingly um, showy, but yours is, I think, a very profound one. Let me uh, let me read it out, and then perhaps you can respond. Um, you you write, uh, I'm an about yourself. I'm an environmental historian specializing in the lands and seas of the Russian and North American Arctic. My interest in northern environments and cultures began when I was 18 and moved to the village of Old Crow in the Yukon. For over two years, I mushed huskies, hunted caribou, fished for salmon, tracked bears, and otherwise learned to survive the tiger and tundra. Um, in the years since, I've, I have visited Arctic communities across Eurasia and North America. Um, how, why did you Why did you uh, go there when you were eighteen? Did you just fancy a, a a couple of years in the tiger and tundra? I mean, I, in some ways, it was too much Jack London as a child. That might be the answer. Um, but more generally, I didn't know what I read in university, which is expensive and it takes a bunch of time. And I had a longstanding interest in um, the outdoors and in photography and writing. And due to a lack of information, I didn't think I had a lot to write about, having grown up in Iowa. Um, and so I ended up in, in this village of Old Crow um, as part of this really kind of shoestring budget around the world itinerary, where I was going to go to the Arctic for a couple of months, and then I was going to go to Costa Rica, and then I was going to go somewhere else. Um, and the long story short is that I have still never been to Costa Rica because I ended up staying in the Yukon for several years. 
um, right. where I'm my, actually going to Costa Rica. Uh, I'm going to Costa Rica next month. I'll send you uh, a postcard, tell you what it was like. Postcard, um, yeah. <laughs> it kind of reminds me, in a way, your story of um, of uh, um, of uh, Debbie Lockwood, who graduated college and then rode her bicycle around the world collecting these 1001 voices. Um, it was quite a brave undertaking. What did your parents think of you just going there, especially leaving a place like Iowa, which is anything but Beringia? <laughs> so my parents were blessed and extremely supportive of this. Um, and I couldn't have done it, honestly, without them. I, I'm sure it terrified my mother in ways that she still hadn't completely told me, um, sending me off. I had a one-way ticket when I first left home to this village of Old Crow, um, about which I knew next to nothing. Um, and so, you know, it was really kind of a testament to their ability to kind of let me go and, and experiment um, as a young person. And, and as much, um, it was as much an anthropological experience as an environmental one or a political or historical one. Um, how well acquainted did you become with the, 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 the different peoples of the region, the Yupik, um, the Inupiat, and the uh, Chukchi peoples? Did you live with them? Did you learn their languages? So when I first went north, I was actually living inland from the from Yupik and Inupiaq and Chukchi country. Um, and I was living with Chukchin, um, who are in kind of in a different language group. And actually some of my friends in Old will give me a hard time because I have subsequently gone on to spend a lot of time with peoples who have at times been historically the enemies of the Jin in kind of territorial disputes. Um, and it's, so it was as I was working on this book, which kind of moved my interest closer to the coastline, I spent more time in Inupiaq and Chi communities. Um, when I was in grad school and then after I, I finished and started um, working at Brown. But that kind of initial experience living in Old Crow and spending time, you know, kind of in-depth time in, in subsistence community was extremely formative. I don't think I would have ever kind of thought about Beringia as a kid from Iowa. Um, and I certainly wouldn't have known to pay attention to some of the things that I was taught so explicitly as part of living in a subsistence community, training sled dogs day in and day out. Um, it really teaches you to pay attention to animals, to not kind of underestimate their influence in your life when you actually depend on them for your life. And watching the ways in which Arctic communities um, have this long-term, deeply engaged sense of their relationship to a particular place really reoriented how I understood what history was um, and, and what it was that is often left out of kind of traditional histories that mainly pay attention to people. Actually, but we've had a lot of shows recently about indigenous peoples, shows about, for example, with Margaret Jacobs, a Nebraska-based mm -hmm. historian, about the injustice. I mean, it's worse than injustice. I don't know what word we would use to, to describe something worse than injustice, but the wiping out of many of these indigenous peoples in some ways, I guess, equivalent to the Holocaust, as some people have suggested, um, we've also had shows with, uh, a Canadian, um, writer, Tanya Talaga about, uh, the, the suffering of indigenous, young indigenous peoples in Canada and suicides amongst their young people. What did you find in your experience 
Um, there are lots of stereotypes about alcoholism and unemployment and poverty. What's the stand? I, I know it might be hard to make generalizations about the different indigenous peoples of Beringia, but were you able to? Or are you able to? And what did you argue in the book? So I think some of the, the work that I hope the book does is help put in context how profoundly influential the, the kind of colonial and assimilationist attempts of both Soviet Union and the United States were in places where the kind of direct violence that you see, um, say, on the Great Plains, right, where the United States military is fighting wars with indigenous right, which people. Jacobs, uh, which Jacobs chronicles in her book. Right. So she, she has sort of an excellent way of laying out what history is. And there's, particularly on the U.S. side, significantly less open violence in Alaska. There aren't wars at the scale that there are in the Great Plains. Um, but the kind of colonial legacy of fortune is still really powerful and something that communities are dealing with day in and day out. Um, and that have real social impact, right? And makes, you know, putting a community Unity back together from those kinds of really intensive colonial um, attempts to do things like take children away from their parents and educate them in boarding schools, which happened both right. in the United Talaga, I, I'm sure you're familiar with her work as well. Yes. She writes yeah. extensively about that. What about Jacobs also writes optimistically about some attempts in Nebraska to give land back. Are you seeing Similar developments in Beringia was all the land seized by the by the Soviet and, and, and American colonizers, or did they get to keep some of their land? I guess it's harsher land, so perhaps easier to keep. Yeah, and it, it looks very different two sides of the strait. So in the United States, um, in the 1970s, essentially the U.S. was interested in developing oil in the Prudhoe Bay region. The U.S federal government sort of finally deals with indigenous uh, sovereignty and title to land um, through the Alaska Native Claims Settlement, which actually just turned this year. Um, and the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act it is not a reservation system. It works differently than other kind of indigenous to U.S. government legal apparatuses and does give Native uh, communities in Alaska rights to some of the land, right? Not all of it, um, and in ways that there's a kind of young generation of really, um, really amazing activists in Alaska from indigenous villages who are talking about ways of um, increasing indigenous access to parkland and just a massive quantity of federal territory that are not currently under indigenous sovereignty or management. Um, a lot of this comes to kind of a sharp point around issues of resource extraction. So in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, um, which is in the news consistently over the last, I mean, frankly, over the last 30 or 40 years um, because of um, attempts to protect it return the sovereignty to um, indigenous folks rather than to the, the federal government. So yes, I think there's a very similar kind of um, really energetic group of young, um, indigenous activists um, and kind of kind of changing the way that these things are discussed in Alaska in ways that are really exciting. It looks different on the Russian side. Um, the kind of federal understanding of Arctic space in Russia is that it is extremely strategically important. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on kind of continued and expanding mineral extraction and fossil fuel 
development in the Russian Arctic um, shipping lanes that will get to Europe via the Arctic Ocean north of Russia um, are kind of a piece of what um, the kind of future economic development of the country is looking at because the decrease in sea ice climate change is making that shipping route possible. None of this is very conducive to discussions of indigenous sovereignty. Um, and in fact, I would say some of those discussions can actually be quite dangerous depending on uh, how vocal they end up being in into the Russian. Were government. all these people, uh, were all the peoples that you study in Beringia, the eunuchs, the uh, the Chuk, the the, the Chukchi and etc., were they all originally settler peoples or were they nomadic? So it's a real mix, actually, and often would depend on kind of what where you lived. So folks living right along the edge of the coast who had access to bowhead whales and walruses lived in essentially settled communities with, you know, some transients, depending on if you wanted to go for a caribou hunt or similar. Um, and then some communities like the, in the interior of the Chi Peninsula are historically nomadic. They follow um, the herds of reindeer that they tend, the domestic reindeer. And reindeer are not animals that you can settle down. They need to move in order to to live because of the, the kind of diversity of plants that they eat on the tundra. Those plants are can be overgrazed pretty quickly if they stay in the same place. So, um, it's, a, it's a place where you is have- Is it true a, that uh, this is the area where Father Christmas lives? Is this where he keeps his reindeers? Well, there is a, there is a town in Alaska called North Pole. Um, there is the kind of major reindeer are all on the Russian side. So. Perhaps Father Christmas is... Well, it's probably a Russian plot like most things in the world. In all seriousness, um, Bathsheba, one of the big hits of uh, late 2021 books is uh, David Graeber's Dawn of Everything. We had uh, William Derasewicz on the show talking about this, his Graeber's alternative uh, anthropologies. Unfortunately, of course, can't talk to Graeber because he's no longer around. But what Graeber is arguing, and I think he's sort of represents the zeitgeist these days, is that we can learn much from pre-industrial man, that the traditional narrative of the enlightenment of these scientific settlers coming and colonizing the land and making everything better is wrong. It's wrong on lots of levels, politically, culturally, environmentally. Um, what can we learn from these peoples that you study in Beringia? What we Americans, we Russians, we so-called modern Europeans and North Americans? It's a great question. Um, and I think I share with uh, Graeber and Wengro, whose book I'm, I haven't finished because very long, but I'm in the middle of reading, um, is a sense that um, the, the ways in which when I teach undergrads, for example, um, folks understand the political options of the present are actually quite limited. Maybe 1.5 economic models. It's mostly capitalism with a kind of side of China communism still out there. Um, so we're not even in the Cold War moment when we had sort of two kind of major ideological and economic models that you could choose from. Um, and similarly, the kind of political spectrum seems to run more or less from authoritarianism to democracies with you know, varying degrees of peril attached. And that that kind of really constrained set of imaginaries is something that the students that I teach are really frustrated by. And that I think part of what David Graeber and David Wengler are doing is trying to say, 
you know, people have lived in all sorts of different ways. And that's certainly true in the Bering Strait. And I think one of the things that the Yupik and Yuyak and Chukchi have very much kept alive in their cultures and their political and so and economic traditions, despite the past, you know, two centuries or so of, of colonization, is an emphasis on paying attention to the connection, the kind of reciprocal relationships that people have with the environment they live in. And that's not something that is emphasized in capitalist economics. It's not something that was emphasized in Soviet socialism. And it is something that I think, as we try to imagine climate crisis, um, if, as we try to imagine dealing with the crisis of kind of increasing extinctions, that being able to think about political formulations that take ecology seriously from the beginning is really important. Um, I also think what folks have been doing in many cases is specific to the Arctic because these are, you know, cultures that kind of understand themselves as based in a particular place. Um, in contrast to the universal ideologies like socialism or or capitalism that pretend that you can operate the same way everywhere. So it's not quite as easy as saying this one thing is working in the Arctic, you know, try to export it to Iowa. Um, but I think the the kind of very act of paying attention to the much broader spectrum of political and economic possibilities there um, is actually kind of a liberatory move. Yeah, I like that word, liberatory, uh, Bathsheba. And and in fact, it's universal. I mean, obviously, the Arctic is very unusual and the Beringia Straits, I guess, in some ways are unique. But I did a show with Jordan Salama. I don't know if you know, he, he, he's just a, another uh, young guy under 30, similar age probably uh, to you, um, who wrote a book about traveling up and down Columbia's Magdalena River. And he found the same sensitivity towards the environment um, uh, in terms of the native Indians of the region. So it's not just limited, uh, I think, to to the Arctic. Um, I also did a show recently, or actually earlier in the year, with David Stasavage, who's written a book about democracies, an NYU professor. And his argument is that many of the, again, I use this word carefully, the indigenous peoples who were killed or replaced or imprisoned or exploited one way or the other by colonizers, they had political systems which in many ways were more or equally democratic as our own. What was your experience when it came to political structures of the indigenous peoples of Beringia? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and generally speaking, and it's, it's difficult to generalize, and I do so very advisedly, um, these are cultures that very much value the capacity for groups of people to make communally appropriate decisions. Um, when you live in a tight knit society in a place where the environment is potentially hostile, if you don't know what you're doing, that's really important. Um, and I think there's also, um, there's a, there's a story that I found told multiple times in kind of the early Soviet period where, you know, so gung-ho young Bolshevik will arrive in Chukchi um, community and say, you know, take me to your leader. Who are your hereditary headmen? Or, you know, in all sorts of ways of trying to ask this question, right? Who is in charge? And who has always been in charge? How do you decide this? And the Chukchi kind of, you know, thought the question was absurd because the ways in which authority worked in their culture had to do with your capacity to successfully shepherd reindeer, 
But that capacity, although it takes an enormous amount of human skill, is also dependent on all sorts of factors that are outside of human control, right? It has to do with what the wolves are up to or whether or not the climate is cooperating with your reindeer herd's size. And so the idea that you would have kind of settled leadership that was fixed at times was just nonsensical. And so this kind of way in which authority is renegotiated all the time is very different, obviously, than many of the ways that we now have bestowing it. And it's not exactly democracy in the sense of everyone having a vote, but it it certainly is kind of a, a horizontal and distributing authority because it kind of consistently has these opportunities for people to say, you know, what you're doing is not working. Much to learn. Um... Uh, 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 Bathsheba Demuth learned much from her time uh, in Beringia, and she has articulated uh, her, her what she's learned in this wonderful new book, Floating Coast, an environmental history of the Bering Strait. It's really a must read, I think, for anyone who cares about the environment or this unique land. Uh, so congratulations, um, uh, Bathsheba, on that. What else should people be reading? I know you're in Iowa at the moment probably about to celebrate Christmas. What else should people be reading? What else are you reading uh, in these odd times in late 2021? Yeah, so I have a kind of an eclectic suitcase packed of books. Um, In addition to Dawn of Everything, along with, I think, the rest of the entire country. um, I'm reading, um, which, which is marvelous, actually. I think it's sparked some really amazing discussions. Um, I'm reading a book of poetry by an Inupiaq poet um, who's, you know, from Kieland, which is one of the islands in the Bering Sea. Um, her name is Nevaya Kane, and the book's name is Dark Track, um, and it's it's excellent. And if you're interested in kind of the environment in the far north, it has a, an angle on that that you won't get anywhere else. Um, so highly, highly recommend. Um, I'm reading a book called What is History Now? Um, by Ellen Carr, or she's the editor, and Susanna Lipscomb, um, which is kind of thinking in the in the 2020s, why we even write histories, kind of what they're for, um, which I also think is an interesting question, particularly given how volatile. Yeah, it must be built off E.H. Carr's famous book, What is History? I don't know if Carr is related, but. Yeah, it's uh, her great grandfather. Uh, Helen Carr's Wow, well, that sounds like a fascinating yeah. book. Well, Bathsheba yeah. again, real honor to have you on the show. Congratulations on all the acclaim for Floating Coast. As I said, it's winning all these awards. You have a brilliant website, wonderful story. And uh, I'd love you to come back on the show in the not too distant future to talk more about your work, your experiences. You have much to teach us still. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. This was a real joy. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network. Uh, or on LitHub's Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I 
develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keen On show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com. Or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keen On. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community, and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not-too-distant future.